HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, June 21st, 2022, and uh, we're here in the studio uh, in Brooklyn, New York, Heritage Radio Network. Okay, so uh, it's that time of year. There's been so many great beer and food books coming out, um, and we've we've got to finally get our hands on Wild Brews by, by Jago Weiss, and I'm loving it, not just the photos and the story of her, but also the the style of beer, wild beers, lambics, and other things that that we we haven't talked about in a while. So really looking forward to having this conversation. We have two great guests with us. Um, Jake, if you just want to say a few words about yourself. Hey everyone, um, my name is Jake Wise. I'm the head brewer of a brewery called Wildcard Brewery, and we're based in East London, in the UK. You probably had. <laughs> <laughs> and and Jeff. Hi, I'm Jeff Lyons. I'm the uh, brewer and owner of Endless Life Brewing in Brooklyn, New York. All right. So, Jago, let, let's let's tell your backstory. So, um, I, I love the intro to your book, Wild Brews. Uh, you talk about the Midlands. What is it about the Midlands? You know, we're, we're we're here in the states, and I know one reason you're on is because your book's now coming out in in the USA. The Midlands mm-hmm. and beer, and your first time uh, at a camera event. <laughs> <laughs> so um to put it into in some context so I'm, I'm from nottingham so we're, we're probably the most famous for what robin hood is probably why most people around the world will know us for but we're also around the corner from burton on trent um which is quite a famous kind of uh, beer city in uh well, i say city it's more of a it's more of a, a small town, really, <laughs> in the UK. Um, and it's just like the beer there is just excellent. But when you grow up in that environment, like sometimes you can you can take it a bit for granted. Um, so I talk about in the book about the um, 
I didn't even come to beer until my kind of like late teens, um, which I don't know about the US, but in the UK, that's certainly quite late. <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, just uh, I went to my first beer festival, well, proper beer festival, which was uh, at the uh, Loughborough Polish Club. And it was a camera beer festival. And I, I tried a pint of Harvest Pale, which is a brewery in the UK, uh, based in Nottingham. And it was 3.8%, very, very uh, pale, very, quite bitter. And compared to kind of like soft uh, multinational lagers, it comes across as exceedingly bitter. But it has this really lovely like citrus edge to it. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was kind of trying one of the best beers in the country. And that beer then went on to win um, uh, basically best beer in the country. (laughs) 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 Um, GBBF, um, which is the Great British Beer Festival. If your beer gets crowned like best beer at GBBF, it is like... You can expect um, the orders to come flooding in the next day, basically. It's it's a huge, huge deal. Um, And, yeah, and and it really kind of all really started from there, really. Um, I was homebrewing with some friends at the time, and that's when the real love of beer came. But I didn't really start brewing professionally until much later. But I was kind of messing around with my friends, really. Well, that's a great intro. And, and Jeff, you... I met you first as a home brewer that, you know, it was kind of the roots of also New York city craft beers. So many home brewers. Yeah. Um, why don't you t- t- tell us a little bit about what the scene was like in New York uh, for home brewers, you know, let's say in two, 2010. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think I met you because you allowed your back room of Jimmy's 43 to be the BJCP meeting place uh, for the New York city home brewers guild. And, and some friends outside of that who, who joined the classes. But yeah, I think that um, there were so few commercial breweries in the five boroughs in New York City that all of the most of the people couldn't get jobs. So we all spent a lot of time homebrewing, getting pretty serious about it, and just had a really tight-knit community based off of that before the laws changed and breweries start, more breweries started to open up. Yeah. You know, and Jago, one, one reason I love your book and I wanted to feature is that, um, you know, the homebrew mu- movement is so, such an important part of craft beer. And I'm glad you said that. And now in particular in, in this country, uh, Julia Hertz, who is, is a huge educator. Now she's running the American Homebrew Association. So um, you're right, right in step with <laughs> everything we want to talk about in beer, because everyone talks about hard seltzer and, and, and the big, you know, deals happening with, with larger brewers. But honestly... It's still about homebrewing, and and I'm sure you must you must be, get excited when you do that, still, don't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, what's really interesting is I don't really view them separately. Does does that make sense? So I view it just oh, yeah. like little brewing. <laughs> does that make sense? Okay. So it's uh, it's how I trial a lot of my like complicated recipes. Like I brew at home all the time with pots and pans. I don't I don't view it that separately. Like the procedure is certainly on on my kit because I have a very simple single infusion kit um, at my brew house. Like, it's pretty much the same proce- uh, like procedure. Um, so for, for me, like, the hygiene is the same. Um, a lot of the techniques are the same. Um, so for me, 
uh, and I spent a huge amount of time working with kind of like local like homebrew chapters and stuff because for me it's absolutely vital if you want to nail like really hard brand new styles you've not made you've not made before. I'm I'm quite lucky in the fact that I've been doing this for quite a while. So like commercially, I, f- I can have a go at most things, but sometimes you really do need to to really go back to basics and um on a small scale to especially when you're working with flavor combinations and you're working with like different fruits and you want to know how much do i have to add how much do i have to dose do do these fruits even go together um i think doing it on a small scale really is key no that's true and uh jeff for you too uh so many of those homebrew meetings um all over whether it was new york city homebrewers guild or some of the ones you were part of in brooklyn i mean what was one of the strangest things you've done in homebrew? Did you ever uh, have a, a pine needle beer made or something else that was a feature of, of a meeting? Oh, man. Um, honestly, no. I've I've always been exploring different yeast, different mixed cultures. Um, I, I haven't done too much craziness in, in homebrewing. I'd have to jog my memory a little bit to think about some of the weirdness that uh, – that I've seen at, at the meetings. I have a buddy um, who made a sriracha beer. He took a Saison and split it up into one-gallon batches, and he did all sorts of nonsense to it, hot sauce and sriracha and all, all sorts of weirdness. Yeah. So, Jake, I, I love that you, you, you were talking about that. Um, t- tell us more about the, that homebrew scene that, that you have access to. Oh, it is... It's quite intense here in the UK. So um, there is there is a big event now, actually, called BrewCon, which is kind of where it all culminates. And in fact, this last year, they hosted it um, at, a, at um, my brewery and a brewery opposite called um, Hackney Brewery as well. So we're part of an... We, we, we've been a part of um, the London for quite a while called Walthamstow and um, lots of the other breweries have recently moved. So there's kind of a long stretch of breweries in a straight line, which is only like 10 minutes walk from each other. And um, BrewCon was held there. And it's just it's just so exciting. It's so exciting um, being around the energy. We're talking like 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 must have been like low thousands of people who come to this festival and it has everything for sale you can imagine uh, in the homebrew community. Lectures going on. You've also got homebrew competitions going on at the same time. Um, you've got professional brewers coming in and giving talks. Um, so it's just it's really exciting to be around that kind of energy. And um, and I've done it. I've been there lots over the years, either giving lectures or just attending. And it's just and it's just so much fun. It's just so much fun to to really geek out with people, isn't it? Oh yeah. So uh, it, when you studied uh, science in school, just just tell us about that. And and did you think originally you would become a brewer? <laughs> you know what? No, is the honest answer to that question. So um, I did chemical engineering, right? And I didn't realize. The whole time that I was secretly building a beer career without realising it. <laughs> so uh, step one, I came, I came from the Midlands next to Burton-on-Trent, which is already 
like you're already that's kind of like mecca for beer um in the uk um i did chemical engineering i wait i then went and worked in water treatment for a year and a half <laughs> in, in a lab where i learned every not everything there is to know but um i worked for a company called general electric which i know a big uh, u.s company their um, water division they made us go to water school which I, I'm not joking, where I learned just everything about that like, hardness and how to soften your water. Just basically all, all the information that I use every day now. Um, and then I, I went into chemical trading, buying and selling chemicals, which is not really very rela- related. Um, but then I just quit my job with no plan and then got, got a job in, in a pub, which taught me the cellaring side. And then a few friends who I used to home be with back in the day, just I just really mess around with. They're like, you know, dude, we were thinking of uh, of doing that uh, brewing thing we always used to talk about. And I was like, yeah, 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 go on. Okay, I'll help. And then that was 10 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> that, that's pretty much what happened, really. I just never left. That's the way to do well, it. I, Jeff, I, I can think, yeah, like, why not learn about water, right? Oh, man, it sounds incredible. I'd love to go to water school. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that um, maybe that's your next next book jaga water school that <laughs> oh, um, it's one of the reasons why in the book i i spend a lot of time talking about water because it's just so vital um to what we do and it's probably one of the most un, um, underappreciated ingredients and we have such a, a massive variety of um of, of like hardness and alkalinity levels um, here and I know in a uh, brewing beer in London is is really really challenging because our alkalinity levels are super high, which is really really good for making like porters, um, but shocking for making things like lagers. <laughs> so so ha- so having to work with it in a way, and also we don't have on our kits we don't have iron exchange or reverse osmosis, so you have to figure these things out chemically, and. Um, Knowing what to adjust and how to adjust it, I feel like it's taken me my whole brewing career to to really get it right. So I kind of figured if I was going to write a book, I may as well just put the things I know in the book. <laughs> okay. So so I was hoping to make it useful for both commercial and so for, certainly for home brewers, but certainly like it would like it would have its place on a commercial shelf as well. Um, and not just theory, like practically, like you need to add a bit of this and a bit of that in order to get this. Um, so that was, yeah, that's probably why I focus so, uh, so much on water because it changes your beer so much, right? Well, so like and we know Burton on Trent is the home of IPA and some of us know it as bass beer if, if you're not into craft. But how is the water at Burton on Trent different from the water in London? So it's actually, so the water in Burton on Trent, right, is really, really unique. And if you ever get the chance to, to, to come to Burton on Trent, just, just have a pint in a pub. Like, there is nothing fancy in Burton on Trent, like, at all. So if you come, I'm sure you'll be uh, excited by the beer, but the surroundings, okay, <laughs> I'm going to be polite. Um, but it has, it's incredibly sulfurous in um in Burton on Trent and there is something uh when you brew with it and you go to the pub and you have a pint there's a a a, a smell and a taste that locally in Burton they they call uh, the Burton snatch 
which is a, um, a really strong sulfurous like matchbox quality to almost all of the beers but it's like it, it's just incredibly unique um and i would say if anyone gets the chance to try it that they should <laughs> well that's a that's a new one um, yeah <laughs> Jeff, had, had you ever heard of that oh, or you, anything else about Burton on Trent? Pretty much that, and that's the extent of my knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. The 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 Burton on Trent, the snatch is uh, is always a good joke. Yeah, uh, I'm curious. Like I'm, yeah, I'm curious um, with that water quality. I've never I've never thought how that relates to making wild beers, sour beers. Do you find that it's is it advantageous or is it something you have to overcome? Um, so I I have always treated um, my kind of wild and sour beers with the same um, rules that I would in terms of water treatment wise, in terms of for every other style of of beer, if that makes sense. So if, if I want more body i may um uh change my like chloride sulfate ratio uh, that's how i've always done it if that makes sense and I, i'm sure lots of people have lots of different ways to do it but i i purposefully didn't go into um if you want this kind of sour um you need to have this water treatment because i just don't think that's true i think a water treatment generally should be treated as a um uh try it and then amend as you go if that makes sense or amend for next time because i think it makes it makes such a big difference i think it depends on the overall what you're going for so if you're after a beer that's quite clean and quite crisp you might do one thing if you're after a beer that's, that's rounder fuller you might do another thing um so yeah that's probably quite a wishy-washy answer. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I would say the same rules apply as as they would um, in all brewing, in all areas of brewing, really. Yeah, we're we're blessed in New York to have such incredibly soft water. There's there's almost nothing in it. And so I was just curious. Really? We've never had to – we've done exactly what, what you talked about, about using those proportions um, to shift it one way or another to, to alter their perception. But – We've never had to think about stripping things out because it's hard water. Or there's too much particulate in there. So it's mm. just something I've never thought about. It's interesting. How how would you find bring the darker side, uh, the darker style beers? Uh, I think that you just you just add a little more to it, right? Um, it it's it's pretty it's pretty easy to do. But instead of worrying about stripping things out, you just think a little bit more about about what you're putting in you might add some more you know bicarbonate or something to yeah to boost it up a little a lot of people put um like cornstarch or uh something of that nature in there yeah i just find the whole area just so fascinating and i think it's one of those things where especially homebrewers i think it's one of the biggest areas that is generally taken for granted but i would say the key is just knowing what's in your water and nine times out of 10, most breweries know what's in their feed water. So just to all the homebrews out there, just please wind up your local brewery about it because they will probably give you that information like for absolutely nothing. Um, and it really is the beginning of of really improving your beers. Jenga, is there a kit where you could test the water 
that yeah, absolutely, that you're yeah. running at home? Oh, um, there is, but I'd probably call it, I'd probably say it's probably a bit prohibitively expensive for, um, for a home brewing scale. And um, when I used to w- work in, in water treatment, it was something that we used to have. We used to have um, kits that used to test every single parameter um, but not all, but not one that did it all at once, if, if that makes sense. Um, and they're quite small, quite simple kits, but we're still talking like 60, 70 pounds a kit, if that makes sense. I don't know what that is in dollars. That's probably like, yeah, it's, pro- it's probably 60, 70 dollars a pound. Is, is, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not doing that great. Um, uh, but I, I would just say either, or I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, our local water source um will tell you what's in their feed water roughly um so you should be able to to take it from that but it's it's honestly your local brewery they probably get it tested once a year once every six months anyway and and you're likely to be taken from the same water source so i i would say um just ask them or just tweet them (laughs) or instagram them i'm sure they'll tell you oh yeah so so jenga um there's some really great recipes in the book um how do you start gravitating towards wild brews? They're just really nice. I think it's the uh, is is the key thing for me. And um, now you know what it is. I'm so lucky that I live like a train way away from um, Brussels and from Belgium generally, and they make just in- such incredible beer. In, in Belgium, it's just such an inspiration to be able to not only go there, but in order to be able to get a hold of all of those kind of beers, I'm talking like the Cantillon, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to get a hold of those beers so cheaply that we can in the UK is just, it's just the inspiration is just through the roof. So it's one of those things kind of as my career has progressed, you you kind of start by thinking, okay, well, I'm going to try and, um, I need to master cask beer, I need to master bottle beer, uh, what's next, IPAs, dark beers, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of the natural progression is to um, to try and get really, really good at the beers you admire, right? Um, so I, I've been working for a long time on my barrel-aged beer program, and I really wanted to do it like sour, like lambic sours, gerzes, um, and to do like the imperial side. So like dark, rich, 10, 11, 12, 13% um, dark stouts as well. And um, it doesn't hurt that if you can make, if you can make really good uh, kettle sours with fruit in them, uh, they sell really well. They sell really, really well. So if you can make a beer that looks like bright red or bright purple or like bright orange or what have you um it's like commercially quite a smart thing to do so um yeah just the love really (laughs) the love in belgium is the inspiration so in your book what's a good first sour recipe to start with that's in your book so i i would say one of the simplest ones to do uh, so i've I've just got, got a copy of it here one of the simplest ones to do um is to start with oh, a couple of them. It's probably to start with uh, the saison. So the saison, 
with like the kettle sour method. So I, I've literally put basically one of the easiest um, methods you can do, which is basically adding a bit of live yogurt into your beer um, in order to turn it. Because obviously live yogurt will, will, will contain a lactobacillus, um, which will give you a nice gentle lactic sour. Um, and then you can add some fruit in there later to try and really make it a little bit complicated. But I think it's a really nice introduction. I purposely made the book on purpose um, using the brew in a bag method. Um, so like the simplest of methods, because the whole point of this is to try and encourage as many people as possible to try brewing beer. And I didn't want to make it too like fussy or complicated um, but yeah, I've done lots in here. So I've got, I've got a kvike recipe in here as well. Um, and then it goes, uh, I've got ghosts, passion fruit ghosts, Berlin of ice, um, lambics, uh, gerzes, which, 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 and that's when things gets really complicated when you have to start having years of different blends. Um, but started super, super simple with this, a nice gentle kettle sour. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and Jeff, you'll probably agree with me. One thing I love about uh, talking about homebrew recipes is that we're not stuck on one style. You know, it's not like a brewery has to put out their IPA and a sour. Um, just the, the different styles you, you mentioned to me is, is one reason I, I fell in love with craft beer, you know, 20 years ago. For for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the joys of, of homebrewing is to be able to just try anything, right? And then sort of go down whichever rabbit hole you want to for as long as you want to, and then pop over to another one. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I jumped into sours pretty quickly though, almost for the opposite reason is Jega. Um, you know, I'm living in Brooklyn on a very meager salary at the time and starting to homebrew and realizing, you know, how expensive it was to buy a bottle of Cantillon or, or anything similar. And, I could make a whole batch of sour beer, five gallons of it, for the price of buying a bottle. So, I've actually, so I've actually had like infinitely more of my own sour beer than any of the sort of legendary breweries. Clever, Jeff. What, what, what's your what's your Cantillon recipe? Like, what when you were doing it? What 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 was the recipe you started with? Um. So there is. Uh, was it borrows the the wild brews book the um that the brewers association put out uh i don't know 15 20 years ago um they have a bunch of recipes in there and i probably jumped off from there but it's it's something simple like 60 percent pills or malt 40 percent unmalted wheat and if you can't get that just use like flaked wheat or or malted wheat um but really with sour beer it's so much more about um, about the culture that you use to, to ferment it than it is the actual recipe. So, I, you know, I think, I think to start, it's probably, you know, if you're going to go with a long, long term sour, like, like you're hinting at Jimmy, I think you'd want to just buy like maybe a mixed culture from Y yeast or white labs or one of the smaller, uh, yeast providers. But yeah, you could do a very quick version. Like Jago was saying with either, you know, live yogurt culture, or um, at least in the States, it's pretty easy to find uh, Good Belly. And you can buy the little tiny Good Belly shots. And one of those will go so far so fast if you're trying to just do a, 
a quick, clean, sour, and sort of, you know, not not have the complexity of a Cantillon or similar, but just something really light and easy, but much quicker turnaround. Yeah. And Jenga, I, I, I'm going, I love that you said Cantillon because um, I know that the, the bright colored, you know, quick sours with fruit sell, but when I think of Cantillon and, and the Belgian sours, it, it really turns me on. I'll tell you a funny uh, <laughs> a, 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 well, a pub owner's story. I mean, um, 2006, I got my first keg of Cantillon Goose, um, a 30-liter keg um, from my pub. And I remember that in 2006, it sat for three weeks. <laughs> Nobody wanted it. And we were drinking. We just we were tasting it and drinking it and enjoying it. And then I never got another keg again in 2014. And that literally we mentioned that we were getting in the keg and it, people went through it in two hours. So um, just seeing the, you know, the, the change in, in a few years of, of interest in it, um, it, it take me back. So we've got all these different styles in your book, Jaga. So can't you on Lambic. Um, and there's other things like the Flanders red, which, which is Rodenbach. Yeah. I mean, I, I, how do you make that? You know, the, the, these are the beers that I, I want to drink. So I like the fancy beers. I like the expensive beers. <laughs> so what's what's really, really exciting about the Flanders Red, and I've spent a huge amount of time um, judging lots of them in, in competition and just like generally, just generally drinking them really. But what's really exciting about them is their, is their acetic quality and um and i talk about um acetic acid or it's, it's kind of it's more common name vinegar um i i talk about earlier on the, in the book when i when i talk to about acetobacter as a um as a as a, as a species of um uh, bacteria and about just how masterful i think being able to use it in a beer correctly or to to use it in a way where it just accents a beer and doesn't um, take over the profile, but really makes it so much better. In my opinion, it's nothing short of, of genius to be able to use it in such a fashion. And that the style of Flanders Red does it just so, 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 so beautifully. And when you get a great Flanders Red, it's it's like the heavens open up. It's so it's so complex. Um, that combination of like uh, breads, you've got like lactic acid. You've got um, you've you've also got the um, uh, the acetic kind of all working together and playing together. It's just and the kind of zingy the zingy tartness. Plus you've got the darker malts in there. The kind of sweet chewy red fruit in there as well. I just think it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, so in the book, I've written about um, how to do it, um, how, how, how to do it in a couple of different ways. Um, one of them is to cheat. I've, I've, I've always put that in the book about how to do it in a, in a cheap, dirty <laughs> way, because that's the way professional brewers, they always have those, uh, uh, that knowledge. But I've also said how to do it in the really complicated, um, uh, get your... Uh, oak chips and soak them in in wine for a long time etc etc and then dose that into the beer um but obviously with your other cultures as well but uh, yeah so have, have a look at the book and you'll uh, 
and and you'll find out. But um, I think Jeff is right. The obviously the base is is important, but when you get to beers like Flanders Red, the base becomes really important. So um, in the book, I've got just a mix of like Vienna, light crystals, dark crystals, some wheat in there as well. So really looking to get that kind of um, uh, really good body, that kind of uh, chewy, caramelly flavour as a base, because it makes all the difference with that beer. And um, I'm sure you guys know just how hard it is to make a true red. So not a brown ale, like a red ale. Um, and sometimes your beer loves to go brown or if you use the wrong combination of malts, it goes brown. But um, I used to make for a really, really long time a red ale. So I know how to get the colour right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's the secret? I, I never thought of that with Rodenbach either for red. I mean, um, we don't really see, so- we don't see any red, at red ales. Really? Okay, so so as an as an iPhone, if you use a combination of light crystal malt and dark crystal malt, but in the right quantities, you will get a, a true red. So um, I've um, I've put the quantities in the book, um, but that will give you a nice a, a nice true red. The other way to do it, um, obviously there are lots of ways to do it, but if you use roasted barley, um, it quite lightly that can give you a nice red as well. Um, but I'm, there are lots of other malts that you can buy Cara Red, you can buy all sorts of other malts, but also they're my kind of two tried and tested red methods. Jeff, have you ever made a red ale? Yeah, um, about two months after I started brewing at home at all, I dove right in and made a red was my first sour. Yep. Doing doing it sort of the long, hard way, sort of what Jacob was talking about, about the mix of uh, light and dark crystal. Uh, some wheat, some aromatic malt, I think really made a big difference in that, like about 5%. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, here, here's my shout out to Rodenbach. I have a food pairing alert, kids. <laughs> um, a very like upscale barbecue breakfast, and I, and I have a, a good friend who used to do competitive barbecue. In the morning, when all the barbecue guys would be standing around, he would take out a nice bottle of Rodenbach, and he would serve it with head cheese or another really fatty, you know, homemade kind of charcuterie. So that's a great pairing. <laughs> head cheese and Rodenbach. Thanks to Sam Barbieri of Waterfront LS. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Keep talking to Jago Wise on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 
40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and to become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So we've got a great new book in front of us, Wild Brews by Jago Weiss from the UK, and now it's launching in the United States. And Jago's with us, as well as Jeff Lyons, the brewer owner of Endless Life Brewing in, in Brooklyn. So Jago, uh, I, I, I love this book, Wild Brews, and, and I, I'm always interested in the stories and, and the intro. But you, you mentioned an early, you're early introduced to uh, you know, some beer history, and you mentioned the Tudor, the Tudor era. And, and all I say is I did look it up. So the Tudor era <laughs> is like Queen, Queen Elizabeth, so let's say the 1500s. But so what was different? Why did you mention t- the Tudor era and beer? And you kind of mentioned yes. souring as well. Yes, because um, a lot of the beers that would have been made in um, – kind of olden days right so we didn't have they didn't have stainless steel they didn't have sterilizing sprays um they they were working with wood so they were putting their beer that they produce in in wood and they weren't working with hops either so uh, or largely that they were mainly working with like a mixture of of herbs and spices known as a groot so you have a situation in which you don't have strong antibacterial properties you're working with wood you don't have sterilizing sprays like the likelihood is the beer would have have soured very quickly um so just that that was one of the things that i was talking about because I, I was making i was making a tv show and it was on tudor beer specifically so i got the chance to make a tudor beer and it was, it was quite fun actually m- uh, making a beer with like no hygiene at all that that was quite an unusual one. <laughs> it, it, it sounds it, it like the, the kind of beer I would make. That's why I don't brew, Jeff, right? I, I have the no hygiene beer, yeah. <laughs> but but it, I think it's really fascinating. I think now we are so, so used to clean brewing. Um, the, the thought of if, if we're making a straight beer, and if there's any sourness on it at all, we're like, that doesn't taste right, that's off. But you can imagine it would have been pretty normal to have like a small sour taint pretty much on everything that you drank. Right. So it's just a really interesting uh, place to, to start really. And to look at just how far we've come uh, in terms of uh, brewing techniques. And then with the Tudor beers, were they just using like uh, grains? Were they mixing in like vegetables? I mean, wh- Ooh, um, what were they I made do- the base? I can imagine, in terms of base grain, that would have been uh, uh, grain they had around. Um, so, obviously, it would have been barley. It would have been wheat. Um, probably just a mixture of the, the cereals that were around, I can imagine. Um, what, what you find is that different households would largely have different... Um, uh, different recipes so it's very hard to pinpoint um, one recipe because this wasn't something that was seen as like largely commercial beer only became largely commercial when you could make money from it I mean like beer equipment was passed down with a dowry so it was largely the preserve of like women 
um, in the household to make beer. So each household w- would have had its own recipe. So it's quite it's quite hard to pinpoint, but I can imagine like uh, random cereals that they would have had lying around would be the most likely source. Yeah, and since you mentioned dowry, what 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 was in a a home brewer's dowry? <laughs> I mean, was it a, a, ca- a kettle? What? Is there a- well, well, the thing is, one of the things that's really fascinating is, like, beer is not, is not really changed that much. Um, it's still the same thing. Like, we are extracting sugars from uh, a cereal, and then we boil it, and then we add a herb. Like, it's, it's not massively changed. So you can imagine the equipment would be very similar. We're talking like pots and pans. I think I think the, the biggest difference between that and the the, the, the the commercial brewing we do now is probably the preserve of maltsters. So we probably, at the moment now, we there's a whole other industry whose job it is to make us um, delicious, tasty, ready to brew with grain. Back then, I'm sure it was likely that people would have had to do a lot of malting in the home. And with that, you're going to get a whole load of variations and you're probably going to get a whole load of like flavors, especially like smoked flavors. Imagine if you're trying to malt um, barley over a fire or in an oven. What's the likelihood of you being able to get pale malt? Probably incredibly unlikely. Your beer is likely to be um, uh, uh, brown just simply by the nature of um of toasting anything it's going to add add color we didn't really begin to see pale malt until really the industrial revolution really um so we are talking about beer that's going to be brown is going to be slightly sour made with herbs whatever herbs herbs are around your local area um probably slightly smoky um because just the nature of having to smoke um uh, malt so you end up with the beer that's actually really interesting and very different to the kind of beers that we drink today and i know that when i recreated it and i tried it like it was so weird but it was delicious it was really <laughs> delicious it, it, like all the flavors just seemed to to really really work um i don't know how long it would have lasted because i didn't clean the beer when i made it but uh, <laughs> um but it but it was it, it, it was very odd and I would highly recommend uh, people to try it if, if they ever get the chance. Yeah. So, so that kind of historical homebrew, if, if they made it, how, how long did it take to, to ferment and to get to ooh. a drinkable state? Oh, ooh. Um, so I did cheat a little bit. So I did cheat and use uh, commercial yeast. Uh, so um, it took the normal amount of time. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't particularly... Um, uh it, it wasn't particularly a slow a slow fermenter but um honestly we we drank all the beer so i i can't say it would have it, it would have stayed and it would have gone off quickly etc etc but but i can imagine i probably would have given it about a, about a week the way i brewed it but um um but then, but then also at the same at the same time there is a boil in there as well and it does boil for a considerable amount of time. So who knows? But it was tasty. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds great. I love hearing about all the flavors. Um, let's keep, keep talking about the styles because, um, you know, we talk about Cantillon, Lambic, Flemish Red. Um, Jeff, what, what's the style of sour that, that, that you, you've made recently or that you're thinking about making? 
lambic's always been my favorite lambic and goose just something about letting a culture do its thing and and really shine and then when you get to goose when you're talking about blending multiple years i mean that just you get to a depth and a complexity that i don't think a lot of other styles can touch on so i mean that's that's where my heart really lies but i'm pretty happy with with all sorts i mean we talked about flanders red that was the first one i jumped into as a home brewer like just you know thinking two months in that i was ready to make you know some complex sour it worked out pretty well um yeah but i we we mess around with some things that sort of you know i'd say you have probably four or five main styles of sour beer with whatever bjcp or with the whatever gabf uh uses to to judge with their guidelines but i think it's really fun when you start sliding in between those styles and just sort of creating things that are you know a little bit unique and maybe a little bit more difficult to describe or to to fit into boxes um you know letting different levels of acidity happen letting different um malt flavors come through sort of pushing different pieces of your of your mixed culture to sort of highlight different different fermentation characteristics. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Jaga, just tell us a little bit about wildcard brewing, you know, the experience of going there and, you know, uh, how many of these different beer styles uh, are are on at any one time? Oh, it's, um, so we've got three bars in uh, East London. So Walthamstone, East London. Um, We've been there for 10 years now, so that's quite fun. So we, so one site is just barrel-aged focus. So um, that's called the, the Barrel Store. And it's where I – there's a, a big wall of barrels there, and it's got all my um, um, my current uh, lambics in there um, and other stuff, and, and, and my darker stuff as well, and my saisons and, and all sorts of stuff. Um and that's super fun. And then we have the brewery itself, which is the other side of town, and that has a bar in it as well. And we do loads and loads of quite hot forward styles. Uh, we work a lot with like Vikes, um, lots of Saisons. And then we have a pub, which we've just taken on, which is like very cask, traditional, um, but obviously with a modern twist. Uh, but you've got to love putting stuff into cask and making brown bitters. That is incredibly fun to do and incredibly fun to fun and tasty to drink. Um, so yeah, we do a mixture. We do a mixture of, of everything. Um, and yeah, and we're having a great time doing it, really. Yeah. So it, you know, your your first taste of real beer was a camera event, and you know, cask bitter. <laughs> Uh, um yeah. and now you've got a you've got a little cask cask pub um what, what is it about cask beer in your generation of of english people british people um you know it it comes and goes here there's spots of it but i it's never really taken off here in the states what is what is really fascinating about it, I think, and and bear in mind, I started out as a as a cask brewer, and it's it, it's the kind of thing here that's seen as very um, seen as very traditional, and um, the way it's served, so it's served at between ten and twelve degrees, 
it's gently carbonated um it's comparatively warm the beer the beer is live you are very much dependent on the skill of the person who's working the cellar and the pub itself so it's kind of a harmony between the brewery doing their job and the publican doing their job as well so there are a few issues generally and what we're seeing in the uk now is is cask is in massive decline at, at the moment um worryingly so and it's the kind of style of beer that when i kind of travel and i, I talk to other brewers it's one of the first things that brewers want to ask you about is how to make cask beer um and it's one of the things that it, that it seems to be viewed quite interestingly around the world compared to how we view it in the uk and i i think the public largely here can be guilty of taking it for granted um, and at the moment, cask beer is generally in a really tricky spot. And there's lots of conversations of how do you keep cask beer alive in the UK? Um, I think the issues... No. Go on. Oh, no, th that's a great intro. Because, you know, from the Michael Jackson books that, that I read when I was just starting in the industry, you know, it was the 1970s and camera, camera came about and, and was saving cask. But now that's almost 50 years later. So it, it's neat. It's really neat to, to hear your take on it. Yeah. And so you have camera who pretty much single handedly um, defended Casper pretty much and saved it from the kind of macro lager stage of like the 80s and, and the 90s. Um, and now you but now you have a situation again where you have camera who also haven't really jumped as on board with modern craft. Um, so there's a bit of uh, controversy over there where they've chosen to support cask and cask and cask only um, with, with some keg, but they basically won't really get involved in keg craft beer at large. Um, and yes, they do cider as well. So they also do real cider. So that's a little bit of controversy there. But I think... I think that there is a there is a real lack of knowledge amongst um, some publicans. Yes, so it's happened to me many times. We get given a pint of of vinegar accidentally, and the the person who's serving it to you doesn't know that that's why that's wrong. Um, so it requires a huge amount of knowledge, and we're in a situation where um, uh, wages are particularly going up. Um, in the UK, we have massive inflation. Um, so are people really putting the time and the energy into training brewing, uh, sorry, a bar staff? Um, that's probably questionable. So, but then at the same time, you can generally buy a pint of cask beer for considerably cheaper than a pint of keg beer. Uh, but we really need to find a way to put cask have it on the same journey as the rest of craft beer has gone on. It seems to be seems to be left by the wayside in a way that I don't think it should, or perhaps we need to think of better ways in order to really push it to the forefront. Um, but there's lo there's loads of these conversations happening in the UK. Um, I think a lot of it is probably just to generally modernise. Uh, is cask beer cool? Uh, do young people want to go out and drink it? Are the latest, hippest, coolest breweries doing their latest beer release 
in cask. Um, I, I think those kind of decisions would help, but it needs some sort of an orchestrator or it needs a trend to catch on that hasn't quite caught on yet um, in, in order to help. So lo- um, lots of problems with cask and, and we are hoping <laughs> that it, um, uh, it doesn't go anywhere because it, it truly is a magical style that you can't get anywhere else right. in the world as well uh, of the same standard. You just, you just, Jeff, you, 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 hey, do you mind, Jimmy? Do do we have a second oh, go to go on a little bit of a tangent? Um, go for it. No. <laughs> you, you, a tangent. you had a, um, you hinted at where my mind was going. I was going to ask, um, you'd hate to see traditional casks go away, bitters and, and whatnot, but would it revive cask itself if some of the more modern breweries were putting more modern styles into cask? Would it sort of prime the drinkers into drinking cask beer and maybe then sort of they'd be more open to drinking bitters on cask? Is is anybody doing that? Um, so there are flourishes of it. There are flourishes of it. I mean, of all of the styles in the UK, I don't think the bitter is going particularly anywhere. It is incredibly popular in uh, of all the beer styles. So it's like a bitter and and like a three three and a half to four percent pale. They're the kind of two big styles. Um, and but we seem to be missing a trick of engaging new drinkers with the style. Um, so I absolutely do think that. Uh, um, uh, modern craft brewers should really get on board with cask a lot more. It's one of the main reasons why I ended up going back into cask because um, everyone kind of has to do their part, right? <laughs> Have you ever made uh, cask beer before, guys? Yeah, um, we've made traditional cask beer. So when I, I worked at a, a brewery called Keg and Lantern, it was a, a brew pub. And they had a cast system when I arrived, and uh, Brett Taylor, who's who's now opened Wild East here in Brooklyn, he and I were working together, and the cast program wasn't going great. We would make traditional style cast beer, and it, you just wouldn't go through it in the same time that you would have a couple of years prior, um, and so you'd end up dumping it. It would it wouldn't be it would go off. Um, so just as a way the the owner was talking about getting rid of the entire program and as a way just to keep the cask engine in we started putting sour beer in and basically dry hopping in the cask and doing different variations five, five gallons at a time in a in a pin um and it allowed we sold a lot of that beer and people were drinking cask style beer but they weren't drinking the styles of beer that would normally be associated with cask and i can't say that we ever yeah. were able to take that and then bridge it back to more traditional styles. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to put too many ideas out there and have the whole thing ruined, but it, you know, I'd, yeah. I'm curious. And Je- Jeff and Jagger too, but even back in 2008, nine, the, the idea of having a cask, a beer in a cask at a, a craft beer bar in New York was very trendy, but again, it, it was anything like you'd have a brewery coming in saying, we're putting our Imperial IPA in cask. We want you to serve it next to the Imperial IPA on draft. And it didn't really say anything about the cask, and no one talked about cask conditioning. Um, oh, it's all about do, the condition. All about the condition. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I will say that, that I've, I've had them. You know, we've had some Ridgeways and Conistons in New York, and, and you know there's a beauty to it. 
But I feel like the idea of having a cask cellar person is akin to having someone in a cheese cave that really knows how to affinage uh, like a, a, a rind, you know, some kind of rind washed cheese where you kind of have to keep an eye on it. And I love that. To me, that's the ultimate part of craft is is that care that goes into, you know, when, when do you know when that, that cask of beer is ready to go? And, and you know, it, it, it does take attention. You know, you, you really can't just um, throw it up. And I, I, my argument, I want to put it out there because I've said it before, but I do feel that Guinness was the gateway away from cask because I think you guys will probably agree with me that between the nitrogen pour that was created with that little spigot that they have, it, it was basically a way to industrialize and commercialize a cast style. And basically, if you had the night the right nitrogen mix and you had the right the the right spout, you you could you could pour Guinness anywhere in, in the world. And that might be controversial, but I do think that 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 the kind of people that would drink cast beer, at least in the states, are right now go, going to a Guinness or a nitro pour and stout. It's really, I think it's really interesting. You know, I think I think the pandemic hasn't helped because what 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 you had was you had all of us breweries were left with with loads of beer because I don't know what it was like in the well I saw what it was like in the US but um like over here we had um it's the taps were pretty much and bars were closed pretty much overnight. Uh, so all of us were sat on loads of keg stock. We were all prepping for busier times of the year. So loads of people delivered draft beer like in the post. Um, and you just couldn't get away with the same um, the same thing on the same scale of cask beer. Um, it is a much, much, much shorter shelf life product. We 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 are talking like 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 weeks versus like like the tail end of months. Um so that didn't help the fact that all the breweries that, that made Caspi had to either throw their supplies away or um, or try and get rid of them as best as, as they can. But but you had you had a population who like literally didn't drink it probably for a good year and a half. Um, so that doesn't help either. But um, uh, hopefully we're on the on and up. We we are on the up. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> onto 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 good things. Hopefully, Casper. Well, it, it it's neat that you've included that you know in in your program, and I know that Jeff um, was making Casper, and you know we all everyone wants it. They always want it, but no one's really quite doing the work yet. I, I don't know if I could. I feel like if I had a cask, I, I'd be the guy that would. Forget about it, and it would turn on me. <laughs> I think, I, I think locally, our our champion is Jason Sailor at Strong Rope. They they definitely have casts throughout um, throughout the colder months every year. Oh, amazing, amazing! I I honestly feel that just nothing nothing in this planet beats a pint of mild <laughs> brewed. Uh, unserved in the like northwest of the UK, and served through a sparkler, and it's like three point eight percent, and it's just it's heaven in a glass, really, heaven in a glass. <laughs> I want that badly. We gotta come and Jeff. We gotta we gotta get some uh, New Yorkers over to BrewCon, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Get them enthused. It, 
See, that's something that you're really excited. You're really excited about BrewCon. You know what's going on in London. So you have all these this line of, of breweries besides your own. Um, is BrewCon a, a good excuse to get over to London? I think it's a fabulous excuse to come to, come to London. But like to, to put it into context, so when I first start started brewing, um, so we're talking like 2012. There was maybe 10 breweries in London. There's now 110 breweries in London. So that just tells you the growth of the brewing scene in, in, in this area. And you had that pattern repeated up and down the country. So there's been a real, real British brewing boom. And cer- certainly where I brew, um, there are, there's literally a brewery opposite me. There's a winemaker two doors down from me. Um, and there are five other breweries within like minutes walking distance um so it's become a real thing to just go and hang out in in a tap room and waste away the sunny says the uh, sunny days <laughs> well listen it's so great talking to jaga jeff do you have a, another question for jaga uh does any of your beer make it stateside oh <laughs> uh, not yet not yet i am i am waiting to be i am waiting for an excuse Maybe I'm, yeah, I'm waiting for an excuse <laughs> to come. <laughs> so invite me to something and I'll come. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'm thinking we'll figure it out. <laughs> okay. And here's another one. Last one, water question. So I'm looking at the map in your book, page 39, heart, adjusting hardness, calcium and magnesium. This is a water question. So when you go north, there's also Scotland. Uh, is there any connection between the water and uh, good Scotch whiskey. Oh my goodness me! So so right. Um, lots of people will answer this question both a yes and a no. So um, if you've ever seen them actually, uh, if you ever seen whiskey actually being made, like they're very very rough with just generally everything pre distillation. I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen it, but their ferment tends to be really open top. People are sticking their hands in everything. Like it can be quite loose um, at the kind of brewing side. And their aim is just literally to get a beverage that's as high ABV as humanly possible for them to distill. Um, but you get some uh, uh distillers especially um scotch producers especially scotch producers that are like uh, on the islands uh, or places who really want to talk about the Tawara region um they will spend a huge amount of time talking about the different styles of water and how it makes a massive difference to your whiskey so i think that's probably more of a controversial question than you think um <laughs> and um, you can probably uh, go up to scotland and find out i think <laughs> But I've heard both yes and no in answer to, the, to that question before. Well, that that's my last plug for your book, because as, as you flip through it, every few pages, there's something you've never seen or thought of, just like that question. Um, <laughs> so I highly just, recommend it. And Jeff, a, we're going to send you, we're going to send Jeff a copy. Wow, Bruce. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Just a massive thank you for, ha- for having me. And it's, re- it's just like, yeah, just, just thank you. And, it, and it's really good to chat to chat shop with you guys. I, I can't, oh, I can't wait to pleasure, read the, the book. Yeah. And 
All right. So thanks so much for joining me. Big shout out to Armin Spengen, our engineer, and Alex Tran, our producing intern. Thanks for joining me, Jaga and Jeff. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. All right, guys. Woo! Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.